I'm Natalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Martin Gilmore and Ben Fitzmaurice have been friends since childhood. It's an unlikely pairing. Martin, from a lowly background, a bit of a wuss, who finds himself in a selective boarding school. Ben, the handsome, confident, destined for greatness son of a well-to-do family. When Elizabeth Day's new novel, The Party, opens, Martin is in a police interrogation room, answering questions about an event that happened at Ben's lavish 40th birthday celebration in his country house, attended by the British establishment. Author and journalist Elizabeth Day, who is London-based but in LA right now, joins me. Welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Well, I found your novel a sort of tantalizing psychological thriller that is explaining the friendship between Martin and Ben and what happened that night at the party. And it paints a very, a picture of a very particular kind of political milieu, um, a very entitled group of people. Mostly they know each other and they're running the country. Um, what was the genesis <laughs> for this novel? Well, the genesis in so many ways was real life. Um, so in Britain, when I started writing this book, we had an old Etonian prime minister who had gone from Eton onto Oxford, where he'd been part of this um, incredibly lavish circle. Um, he'd been part of the Bullingdon Club, which was a very kind of elite section of young men um, who had to sort of drop £10,000 on just being equipped with the right clothes to join this, this club. And um, it just struck me that I was existing in a world where the people who were governing us, uh, they were living in a sort of bubble. And I think there are many um, great and lovely people who go to selective boarding schools and onto elite universities. But the slight danger of that is that you are born with a kind of innate sense of entitlement. And because your journey is so smooth from one lovely bubble to the next, you don't have much of a clue about how real people live their lives. And I was really interested in exploring that dichotomy that someone can essentially be passing laws which will affect the way people live their lives. And yet they don't know how the vast majority of people in a certain sector of society live. So it was really the gap between the haves and the have nots that interested me. And on top of that, there's a particular kind of layer of isolation that you get in British society that comes from the class system. And um, although we now live in a much more socially mobile era, I still think that historically the, the class system still makes itself felt. It's, it's quite hard for someone in Britain still to be born in one quote unquote class and to make it to another without there being a slight sense of snobbery about it and yeah yeah I was going to ask you about that because to me it is a book about the class system and how it works and how hard it is to compete against and Martin has made sacrifices for his friendship with Ben but as Ben starts to pursue a political career Martin isn't quite the right kind of person to have around anymore despite their decades-long friendship and the secrets that they keep um and it's interesting you know that Britain hasn't gotten past that class concept even now yeah it is interesting I think it's become in a way it's a bit like sexism it's become a lot more insidious um, we've passed the various laws that mean you can't discriminate against people overtly in the workplace um, but that means that it's it's sort of unspoken but it's very much still there and it's very subtle and nuanced and I think 
In America, there's a slightly different system at play. Um, I mean, I'm a regular visitor here, but I wouldn't claim to be any kind of expert. But one of the things I really admire about America is that it feels to me as an outsider that the hierarchies are somewhat flatter. So I come here and I feel it's like a land of opportunity. And if I need to get a meeting with someone, more often than not, that person will give me a chance and take the meeting. Um, whereas it's harder for someone like Martin, who comes from the wrong side of the tracks, who has a troubled upbringing and then who wins a scholarship to this elite school. It is harder for him to know the rules. Um, I think there is an immense privilege that comes from a certain kind of background where you are just taught how to be charming and how to operate in polite society and you know what clothes to wear and what parties to go to and the kind of the right people to meet and um, Martin is always kind of struggling to keep up with Ben and part of the reason he's so really kind of platonically and 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 slightly sexually um, in love with Ben is because Ben represents all that he most wants to be and yet will never fully be able to be so when they first meet Martin really makes a study of Ben and sees the clothes that he's wearing and tries to wear the same ones and tries to buy the same music CDs as Ben does because he sort of wants to become him. He wants to gain access to that gilded world. And I think, I certainly hope that that's something, that's a theme that we can all relate to um, as readers. Yeah, I mean, you sort of feel Martin's embarrassment when he goes to the family home for the first time and they're playing tennis, but he doesn't have mm -hmm. tennis whites. And I feel that that had a very profound impact on a, a young Martin that he was you know, constantly trying to, you know, strive for. Um, now, as I say, he he's a bit of a wuss. Um, <laughs> his life revolves around the firmament that is Ben. Um, he's clingy and he's a little clueless. And what yeah. was it like getting into the mind of a male relationship like that? I'm, I'm, I'm never quite sure what people will think when I say it was remarkably easy um, to get in the mind of someone who, as you say, is a bit of a wuss, but also a bit of a sociopath. Um, um, I had written uh, three novels prior to this, and the last one, Paradise City, was the first time I'd written a male protagonist. Um, I did it in the third person, though, so I wasn't actually in his head. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. And I think for me, as a female writer... One of the things that I think a lot of women suffer from is uh, a lack of self-worth and a sort of shaky self-confidence. And I don't want to generalise massively about gender, but that was certainly my experience. And there was something about writing um, an entitled male protagonist that was incredibly liberating for me because in a way it was the purest act of imagination. There was no way anyone could accuse me of being autobiographical. And it was a very um, freeing experience. So I knew that I liked writing men. And when I came to do the party, um, I, I, I wanted to, yeah, really inhabit that world again. And so I started writing in a male voice, this time in the first person. And I think what's interesting about Martin and possibly why I found it a sort of easier leap to make is that as we've touched on, his sexuality is a fluid thing. So he is a man, but he has quite, quote unquote, female attributes. And I, I found that really interesting to explore. He's, he's also an unreliable narrator. So there's a sense of liquidity to his character that was really interesting as a writer. Um, but I did, uh, you know, I was writing about boys boarding schools and, you know, men right. friends with each other. And clearly I've never been to a boys boarding school. And there was a point where I thought, God, I hope I've got this right. And at that point, I actually um, asked a couple of men of my acquaintance, um, 
one of my first readers was a man and was very, very helpful. Um, and I read a passage out loud to my boyfriend who himself had been to a boys boarding school and they all came back and said it was remarkably accurate. So I was, I was sort of, I was relieved by that. But I think what it shows is that whenever you're writing a character, you're writing the character and you're not writing a gender. Right. And uh, I mean, I think that's true, but it's interesting, you know, your other narrator, uh, because the story unfolds through alternating narratives, is that of Lucy, Martin's wife, who uh, has written everything down in a notebook after said event has happened um, at the party. And, you know, this sort of this device um, of writing about a marriage is something that, you know, has become a great way to look at a marriage. What did it allow you to do? Um, and actually tell us about Martin that you yeah. couldn't tell, you know, he couldn't tell us himself. Yeah, that's it's such a good question. I, I basically, when I started writing the party, I was writing exclusively from the point of view of Martin and I got four chapters in and I thought that there needed to be another person who stood in for the reader who could explain why Martin was attractive. And that's when the character of Lucy, his wife, developed. And because she was a later addition, I wanted her to have a very different voice from Martin. Um, Martin is an art critic. And so his observations are sometimes quite florid, um, quite detailed. They're often quite acerbic also. Whereas Lucy is much more plain spoken and her language is much more stripped back. And when I started writing her, her voice again came to me very naturally, um, partly because she is a woman in an unhappy marriage. And um, that was formed from my own experience of um, I was a woman in an unhappy marriage, which I'm no longer in. Um, and it was something that I wanted to explore again, because I think it affects a lot of women. A lot of women, I think, are drawn to men who withhold affection mm -hmm. um, because they're drawn to that that thing that elusive thing that they can never have and so lucy's quest in a way mirrors martin's own quest um he's also in search of this elusive thing that he can never have which is belonging um and so i really liked the kind of mirrored quality of the two characters and the thing that i love most about lucy is that she starts off as this slightly mousy character viewed through Martin's eyes and Martin is slightly dismissive of her. But actually through the course of the novel, she grows in strength and self. And um, when you read her version of events, they are always slightly different from Martin's. And um, again, that's the kind of narrative device that I really like and is done so brilliantly in Gone Girl. Right. Um, uh, yeah, so it's definitely, that was an influence in the book. And I think what is interesting about Lucy is you're kind of, um, throughout the book, you're you're willing her to, you know, just come on, you know, step <laughs> up, be yourself. You know, she's clearly the shadow of the relationship. You know, Ben's wife describes uh, Martin as a, the little shadow in their life, yeah. but in Lucy and Martin's marriage, Ben is the rather big shadow that she has to contend with. And you're kind of willing her on to stand up to it. Um, yeah, I, th I think that unfolds very, um, you know, in a very sort of gripping and engaging way. Thank you. That, that means a lot, actually. <laughs> um, now, the other thing about the book is it's delicious in its descriptions and observations of the upper class and the wealthy and the impact that they and their lifestyle has on mere mortals like Martin or us. Um, yeah. uh, there's one 
passage you wrote, uh, Martin's observation, uh, we are jealous, yes. Internally, we decry the excessive, absurd, narcissistic scale of a party like Ben Fitzmaurice's 40th. But other people's money has a narcotic quality. It makes you high. It makes you forget your misgivings. You feel privileged, somehow exceptional to have been invited, as though the tiniest fleck of gold leaf from a giant glittering statue has smudged off on you and you can kid yourself you belong, that you are, for a single night, indubitably one of them. <laughs> now... I haven't really hung around a lot of rich establishment <laughs> people, um, but your description of this party and the lives of Ben and his wife, Serena, seems so authentic to me. I can actually visualize it all in my head. Um, have you hung around a lot with the rich, <laughs> rich establishment? I'm so delighted to hear you say that. I, 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 I sort of have, but again, um, it's from the position of the observer um, that Martin is. So I had a tremendous amount of fun writing about it. And the reason I found myself in the position of a Martin is because my first job out of university as a journalist was for an evening paper in London called The Evening Standard. And The Evening Standard has a revered gossip column, which is, I guess, the equivalent of page six in the States. Um, mm -hmm. And it's called The Londoner's Diary. And so every night for a year, I was sent out, this, you know, 22-year-old journalist, I was sent out to an array of the most glamorous parties that you can imagine in and around London. And um, I went to the Lord of the Rings premiere, I went to art gallery openings, I met um, Pierce Brosnan and Robert Altman, and like I went to film awards, and it was amazing but it was also by the end of the year completely exhausting because when you're put into that role you have to go to a party not knowing anyone and you have to try and um inveigle your way into conversations in order to get a story for the next day's paper and so therefore I became very used to observing what was going on <clears throat> and observing the minutiae of what was going on and how people were and how people acted and I think as a journalist more generally um you're tremendously privileged because you do sometimes get invited to these things, but you are never, as I say in the passage, you're never one of them. Right. And, and you must be very clear about that in your own head. And it's like when you do, I also do a lot of celebrity interviews and, and sometimes I'll interview a celebrity and I will think, I mean, you and I are basically going to be best friends because we get on so well. And, and then you go away and obviously you never hear from them again because they're just charismatic beings and they make you feel really special and charmed. But it's that thing of like, you've just got to be careful. You can get close, but not too close. And that was, again, all of that sort of journalistic experience poured into the party. Yeah, I definitely feel that in your descriptions of the party. And, you know, I, I hope someone I can so visualize it that I see it as a drama I'll be watching on TV in the not too distant future. Um, oh, I hope. Hey. Yeah, it's, uh, been, it's been options. So watch this oh, that's space. Great. Yeah. That's great. Then we could play the fun casting game. But for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, um, that's probably not fun for them. <laughs> um, but I see Tom Hiddleston somewhere in this production. Oh, that's so funny you say that. That's so funny you say that because I did actually interview Tom Hiddleston at the beginning of last year, I think it was. And he is genuinely someone. He's a rare, a, a rare example of someone who did actually become um, 
kind of a friend and we emailed each other for a while after that so I, I feel like I could email him and ask him but oh, I, well t- tell him I thought he would be a good I for the will cast. I'll pass on your best <laughs> um, now one person I want to talk about is uh, Serena Ben's wife uh, who really has no time for Martin in their lives and he's frankly a real bitch to Martin and particularly <laughs> yeah. to Lucy who she looks down upon please tell me she's a thinly disguised version of a person you knew in real life and you're now getting back at oh gosh uh, she's she's definitely a composite of real life people I have known. Um, I think again, um, in my 20s, again, this is a very common experience, but I was sort of searching for my own identity for a lot of my 20s. And and I just remember so clearly that feeling of being in a nightclub and pretending to have a good time and feeling like you're wearing slightly the wrong clothes and your hair's a bit messy and you're not polished or sophisticated and uh you see these women who who are and who beam that outwards and who you feel are looking at you in a certain way in a certain sort of critical way <laughs> and um i think we we all have that kind of fear and um serena is serena is cold with it she's like a cold woman who is extremely beautiful and therefore has never really had to work on her personality right and boy does she want to make people especially lucy uh very cognizant of that fact yeah well i think she's threatened by lucy because i think she realizes in a way that martin doesn't to begin with that lucy there's a lot more going on there than than meets the eye and lucy is so alternate to serena lucy is someone who thinks it's important to read books and is, you know, um, intelligent and kind of vocal and and um, doesn't mind getting into arguments where she has a political opinion that might disagree with someone else's. Whereas Serena is very much, I think she's, she's threatened by um, Lucy's intellectual superiority. But yeah, she's not based on anyone I know, but she's probably a composite of a type of person that I've come into contact with. Uh, well, I think the women are wonderful uh, companion characters too the two main male protagonists and you know you've got a lot of twists and turns and secrets revealed and it builds up to a crescendo which um i can't spoil by talking about it now but uh i will say that it's a wonderfully written page turner with true to life characters and a perfect companion to a bottle of wine curled up on the couch for an evening the book is called the party by elizabeth day you could read about this and other great books by women authors at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com. And please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or other fine purveyors of podcasts. Elizabeth Day, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. I really loved it. And I love this whole project. It's a brilliant idea. Thank you.